This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Stessler, and this is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's outstanding panel, returning to the roundup and getting first billing is the incredible, brilliant Lene Erickson. Lene is the senior vice president for the social policy and politics program at Third Way. Lene also served on President Obama's advisory council on faith-based and neighborhood partnerships. Welcome back, Lene. It's good to see you. Thanks for having me. And making his politicology debut is Frank Sadler. Frank is the chief of staff at Carly Fiorina Enterprises, and he also served as the campaign manager for Fiorina's 2016 presidential primary campaign and was an advisor to former U.S. Senator George Allen of Virginia and was once upon a time my boss. Frank, it's so great to have you on, and I'm really excited for today. Thanks for having me, Ron. On this week's Roundup, The House members who are retiring before heading into the 2022 midterms, the recent worker strikes at companies from Kellogg's to John Deere, the latest in the Virginia gubernatorial race, and finally, in our segment for Politicology Plus members, we'll discuss a scoop from Mother Jones that Joe Manchin told associates he may leave the Democratic Party. If you're not already subscribed, you can head over to politicology.com slash plus to get the plus segment and join our community. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Let's dig in. This week, Democratic representatives John Yarmuth of Kentucky, David Price of North Carolina, and Mike Doyle of Pennsylvania all announced they're not seeking re-election, bringing the number of House Democrats set to retire or seek another office up to a dozen. And the list includes Ron Kind of Wisconsin and Ann Kirkpatrick of Arizona, who are from two of the most competitive districts, according to the New York Times. Yarmouth, Price, and Doyle said that they are retiring because of redistricting ahead of next year's midterms, Donald Trump's sway over the Republicans, and the current rifts within the Democratic Party. Now, none of the three cited a concern about a particular faction within the House Democratic Caucus, but they are worried that the groups aren't willing to compromise. Democrats can only afford to lose three or four seats in the House, or they will lose their majority. So, Lene, why don't you kick this topic off for us? Uh, Should we interpret this as a sign that Democrats expect to be in the minority come 2023? I mean, I think we have a lot of signs that the midterms are going to be very, very difficult. 
Uh, we know that mm-hmm. coming in. We know that usually a president's party loses seats in the midterms. We know that Republicans control uh, a lot of the redistricting and that we're going to lose somewhere between five and 12 seats just that way, which means that we're actually not talking about keeping the majority. We're talking about winning back the majority right. at this point already. So we're starting from behind. So these retirements certainly matter. I will say, though, you know, it doesn't look to me like it has in some of the other years where people are just literally like running away from Congress. Yeah. You know, we've seen um, in, you know, in 2018 and um, some of the other wave years, you you might see dozens of members, longstanding members of Congress just bow out because they, they realize they're going to lose um, and they'd rather retire and not be retired. Uh, so I'm, I'm not panicking about that except for the fact that our majority is so narrow and going to shrink and become a minority that we then again have to win back. So every seat counts. um, And that means that we're going to have to look at some of those fewer and fewer um, districts that Biden won that Republicans still represent. And those are, it's a very small number. Yeah. We've talked about this before, but it does look like redistricting will make the path for Democrats to retain the House steeper. Uh, But in this New York Times piece, uh, David Wasserman from Cook Political Report, who's been on the show before, said that Republicans could net up to five seats from redistricting, uh, enough to win the majority, but not the 10 to 15 seats Democrats have feared. He said Republican state legislatures have already gerrymandered their maps so much that they can only go so much further. And, uh, And that Democratic legislatures, especially in New York and Illinois, are already also willing to gerrymander their maps uh, uh, pretty severely. Frank, do you think Republicans can improve upon the uh, job they did last time around in terms of redistricting? Is it, or they have they reached a ceiling in terms of the disproportionality of power that um, that has manifested in the House? No, I think they've done pretty well, right? Yeah, um, I'm sure there's a few more that they can pick up, but at the end of the day, this most of these maps are drawn in a fairly favorable way to that party, yeah. and I think. On the margin, there may be a little pickup, but the truth is, whether it's retirements, whether it's redistricting, it's just a tough cycle for the party in power. It yeah. always is. It has been for 50 years. There's like one exception. Um, I don't read much into these retirements. The question is, when we get closer to the start of the primary process, yeah. then do we see a wave? And yeah. that's where I think if you're a Democrat, it, it does it matter if you lose the majority? Absolutely. It also matters by how many you lose yeah. the majority by. And uh, if I were a Democrat, I would worry that this is simply the start. This isn't the end, right? So when we get into the first quarter of 2022, where does it stand there? And who then is starting about thinking they're not going to run again? And if that wave gets big— then there's some real problems that they have to deal with. I will say two things that make me slightly less depressed than what you just said. Um, one is that um, the Justice Democrats and the Our Revolution folks um, that work with, you know, the Bernie Sanders AOC wing of the party um, have largely decided that they want to start primarying people in safe districts. So they mm. they go and primary, you know, old white guys who represent increasingly diversified liberal districts that are never going to vote. 
vote for Republicans. Yeah. That's great. I'm super happy about that. You can liberify Brooklyn all you want. That's cool. Um, they have realized that they are much worse at and, in fact, have not um, flipped any seats from red to blue um, and that their candidates just do not work in swing states, um, swing states and districts. And so that means um, that they're doing less of what I see as very counterproductive, which is primarying frontliners who are the people that we need to protect because if people like Abigail Spamberger, if people um, you know like uh, Jared Golden in Maine are having to worry about a primary, that's very bad because they mm. need to spend all their time and attention yeah. making sure they, they save those seats. That's good. The other retirements thing, I know we're talking about the House side, but the Senate is really where the retirements are going to matter because all of the states that Democrats could potentially pick up it's because the Republican has retired there. And that's not usually true. You know, I yeah. mean, there, I rarely have something good to say about Democratic politics in the Senate. <laughs> usually the House is where, where we're doing better. And so there is this interesting dynamic where you're seeing these, these more moderate R's say like, mm, I'm out of here in the Senate and then leaving, you know, Rob Portman, Pat Toomey. I, I don't really want to call Pat Toomey a moderate because he came in on a Tea Party wave. But based on where the party is now, now he's he's much more moderate. These these folks are leaving because they don't want anything to do yeah. with the the place the Republican Party is now, and then that's opening um, opportunities for us to potentially keep the Senate majority, which would be really yeah. And important. that's where, to your point, but on the Republican side, yeah. is where the primaries are really going to matter. Yeah, right? That's right. It's in some of these, I think Pennsylvania is probably the best place to think about this. Is like who, what type of Republican actually ends up becoming the nominee, and you know, if it becomes someone that is in the mold of Trump, mm -hmm. it may make that state a little trickier for Republicans to hold on to. Mm -hmm. And that's what we'll have to wait and see. And Trump is actively inserting himself in a oh, way yeah. that Mitch McConnell is very unhappy about, I think, in a lot of these yeah. cases. Yeah, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to Virginia, but— um, but I want to I want to put one more thing on the table in terms of these retirements um, and the and who does or doesn't fill their seats. According to the Times, uh, these three retiring members that we mentioned said that failing to pass the infrastructure bill and the social policy uh, reconciliation bill would be disastrous for Democrats in 2022. Mike Doyle noted that the trouble around the reconciliation bill isn't because of Republicans that it's internal. Uh, he also said, "quote While people say they don't like to watch sausage made." get made, I think is what he meant. Uh, they like to eat the sausage in the end. <laughs> and and so, uh, so I get, you know, to both of you, how, how Democrats have a lot writing on this bill, on this whole package getting done, right? Both of these things, because they have to run on something. They have to say they, they accomplish something. Um, so how important is it do you think uh, both packages are for Democrats to have a shot at 2022 at sort of, you know, coming from behind and then reclaiming the majority in the House? And on the Republican side, Frank, how, what are, does policy even matter anymore to Republicans? It, you know, regardless of whether this, this gets passed, doesn't get passed, what's in it, what isn't in it, is any of that going to matter to Republican voters going into the midterms or is it all going to be about Trump? So maybe Lene first and then Frank. Yeah, I mean, we were talking about this right before we hit record, and I think <laughs> the um, the upshot is uh, if we don't pass these two bills, we might as well go home. Like, there's there's zero percent chance 
that we can maintain either majority in the midterm if we don't get something done because we look chaotic. We look like, oh, we have control of every lever of government and we can't do anything because um, we're not going to do anything else. These are the only two yeah. things that are, are possible. And we're not going to be able to say, oh, remember when we passed the American Rescue Plan in you know, March of 20, you know, 2021? Like no one remembers that. So, um, so it is imperative. And I think that is hopefully why we are going to get across the line and get through um, these family differences that we're, you know, hashing out over the Thanksgiving table right now, because everybody knows that if Biden's numbers don't go up, Mm. we're going to lose. And Biden's numbers will not go up if he can't get these bills passed. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I I know nothing about how Democrats will think about this and how their voters think about this. I'm not convinced that it matters from the Republican standpoint, right? I think pass it, don't pass it. I think the Republicans are going to run on things that have nothing to do with those policies at all. Um, So on the margin, does it matter? I think it probably matters from a turnout standpoint for Dems. Um, I think Biden showing competence would really help um, in some districts. But Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, from a Republican standpoint, I think what we're going to have to wait and see is, is there going to be a turnout because people want to react to what they think happened in 2020 or not? Yeah. And I think that's the... That's the name of the game from a Republican standpoint. I don't think policy is going to have anything to do with it. So the the only thing so, – so, you know, putting a Republican strategy hat on, right, it, se- it seems like either way this shakes out, Republicans have a hand to play. If the, if the packages get done, uh, then they can rail against whatever was in it, right? Yeah, yeah. But, the- but it, it, this – like we talked about this a little bit maybe a few weeks ago, Lene, where, um, you know – Republic, like the ACA was a really good example of Democrats passing things that are wildly popular with the people, but then spun uh, and and sort of called something else and then weaponized against them, right, by Republicans. So they call it Obamacare and everybody hates it. You call it death the ACA panels. everybody loves it. Right, death, death panels. panels, right. Yeah, so is there is there a situation in which the both of these packages get done with everything Democrats want in them and then Republicans just call it something else and and use sort of anti-democratic sentiment to, um, yeah, I mean, I to don't, drive turnout? Maybe, right? I mean, yeah. I don't actually think it matters what's in the bill. Yeah. <laughs> I, I agree with you. Right? I think, like, yeah, that's it, what I mean. Here's what we know. And if they don't get anything done, so the other side of that coin is if they don't get anything done, then they say Democrats failed. They can't govern, right? We, yeah, I think regardless of what happens from a policy standpoint, the talking points for the Republicans will be the same. Either mm-hmm. the Democrats are moving us, have passed legislation to move us to the left to make us socialists, or the Democrats want to move us to the left and yeah. make us socialists. <laughs> it doesn't actually matter yeah. what actually happens in Washington. I don't yeah. think at that level, for a turnout standpoint, that it matters. I think, does it matter? Are there some ads that it may matter? Maybe. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I don't think policy is what turns people out, yeah. especially the way the Republican Party is right now. Yeah, it's going to be culture. But there is one thing that could matter if it's in the bill. I, d- I don't think it's something going into effect that people feel and then that's why they vote for Democrats because most of the things in the bill, sadly, will not be, you know, in people's pockets, in people's lives um, implemented before the midterms. Yeah. I wish they were, but but they wouldn't be. Um, but there is this continuing fight about the debt ceiling and Republicans have been mm. very clear that they are not going to participate in raising the debt ceiling, yeah. which is, you know, basically ga- – 
taking a gamble with our economy. Um, and this, you know, but so Democrats may have to do it via reconciliation. If they do it via reconciliation, they have to use a number instead of a date. So you can either mm. two ways to raise the debt ceiling. You can say uh, you can continue to borrow what you need to borrow until X date or you can continue to borrow what you need to borrow up till X number of money. And you can't do the first one by reconciliation. So if it goes by reconciliation, you have to say a number. Mm. If we say a number and it's in the Build Back Better bill, because timeline-wise, it's very difficult to do two reconciliations Ugh. more this year. We've already done one. Uh, then we, uh, we're we going to be able to ha see some Republican ads that say, you know, that are going to smash those two things together. Dem Democrats raised the debt by $82 trillion, even though – we know that the bill is going to be paid for. So it is very bad politically yeah. for Democrats to have to vote for a debt ceiling um, increase as part of their big spending bill because it looks like the debt ceiling increase is because of your big because spending your bill, big spending even bill. if that's not the case. <laughs> yeah, the only pushback I'd have to that is like, I yeah. think they get hit with that regardless. They do. Yeah, right? they like, would, definitely. It's, I just, it's whether I, or not it's true. Yeah. They're still going to get hit with it. <laughs> I just worry it's very potent if it is true. So. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. mean, it's potent either way. I think, it's, yeah. I think it's a problem either way. This is the problem with governing. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I mean- This is the problem with governing. It's, it's hard, hard to govern. It's, it's hard always to govern, hard to govern. And it's hard to win, right? You know- the lesson, the lesson from 2020, right? I think is, don't win states like Georgia. Yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, that's. I think, you know, you need you you need Mitch McConnell in the majority, right? I mean, if you're Biden, that's the that's the real lesson you mm, gotta learn is because you have a foil. It's not just a foil; like it puts some pressure on McConnell to get some things uh, done, mm -hmm. right? As so, opposed to just stand in the way of things getting done. Yeah, yeah, which McConnell's brilliant at, yeah. right? And but, McConnell's very good at keeping everyone in line. Okay. And so having him in the majority changes that dynamic. And it and that's you know, I those see. two that, those two races in Georgia flip that, right? So if McConnell was in the majority, paint this picture for our listeners, if McConnell was in the majority right now, how would that change the calculus for the Biden administration and getting and actually how would that create pressure? So I think it puts a little more pressure on McConnell to negotiate, right? Okay. He gets he gets some pressure from the business community because he's actually in the majority. So he actually is the one who starts to move things. Mm. Now he doesn't have that pressure because it's not up to him. So particularly mm. things like the debt ceiling yeah. or things like, you know, keeping the government funded. There yeah. are things you have to That's literally right. do. That's right. And McConnell's right when he says, they don't, right. they don't need me. They want to increase the debt limit. Chuck Schumer is the majority it, leader, which is weird whole. that we don't hear much about Chuck Schumer or I hear, I hear a lot about Chuck uh, okay. Schumer. Okay, <laughs> yes, certainly you I do. I can tell you more yeah. later. But it does seem like he's 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 not sort of um, sort of playing up the role as majority leader. That's uh, because Manchin is the majority leader mm. in the Senate at the moment because he is the majority. So uh, they, somebody said the other day, um, Manchin and Cinema have pr um, private parking spaces now at the White House. <laughs> like, I'm positive they're talking to Joe Biden a lot more than Chuck Schumer is because they're, the, yeah. Chuck Schumer doesn't know what needs to happen to get them on board. And yeah. so the White House is negotiating directly with the two senators who do. <sighs> okay, so if you were a betting woman— does this get done? Yes. Okay.
Yes, I do. I do think it gets done because ultimately uh, the White House is negotiating with several different bands of moderates to try to get folks on board. The progressives would rather have a two trillion dollar bill than zero. Um, and, you know, we're negotiating about things that are fungible. We can shorten time frames. We can, uh, you know, put something into place. How many times have I heard this week? Well, we'll put this program into place and then we can build on it later. So mm. um, and that's much cheaper than actually doing it for a longer period of time. So there's a lot of ways we can spin this. And I just hope that once it passes, which I think it will, that we embrace it as a success rather than measuring it against whatever Bernie Sanders' dream list was and minimizing what we've accomplished. Striketober. Over the last couple of weeks, workers across the country are demanding better pay and better working conditions, so many that it's been dubbed Striketober. Last week, more than 10,000 John Deere workers went on strike. Over 14,000 workers at Kellogg's went on strike on October 5th due to a dispute over wages, benefits, and extended working hours. More than 24,000 healthcare workers at Kaiser Permanente authorized a strike earlier this month. The union that represents the behind-the-scenes workers in Hollywood narrowly avoided a strike. Uh, it would have been the industry's biggest walkout since World War II. Nabisco workers returned to the job last month after a weeks-long strike over a disagreement about shift lengths, overtime, pensions, and moving jobs to Mexico. And overall, these strikes took place in 12 states, including Michigan, Pennsylvania, Georgia, and Virginia. Very important politically. According to NBC, the increase in strikes is the result of workers having more leverage as employers struggle to hire, and that a lot of these workers have spent the last 19 months on the front lines of the pandemic. William Blair Industrials analyst Larry DeMaria described the strikes as a broader trend for labor to reclaim some of its lost bargaining power over the last 30 years. So during the campaign, Biden pitched himself as a union man, but a February NBC News poll found that the percentage of blue-collar workers who call themselves Republicans has grown by 12 points since 2010, and the percentage of blue-collar workers who identify as Democrats has also declined by 8% over the same period. So, Frank, I want to start with you first, and then, Lene, how should we expect the shift in party affiliation to impact union action? And just more broadly, what do you make of the shift of blue-collar workers now trending Republican and more white-collar workers trending Democrat? Yeah, so I think it's more of an education level than I do think it's an okay. industrial level, right? So I think what we're really seeing is a shift on uh, education level. And that's, you know, one of the big things we looked at in 2020 and in 2016, right, were white educated. And so I think this is just a different manifestation of that mm. issue. So I think it actually has less to do with industrial policy per se. I think Trump did a very good job of raising the fears that folks have. But at the end of the day, I actually don't think that's really what this is about. Mm. I think this is um, the parties are, are realigning around education. Education. So, Lene, one of the things uh, – I, I read is that some of these union leaders noted exactly what Frank just said about Trump's, uh, how Trump exacerbated the fears of, for example, the immigrants coming to take your jobs. What role do you think that is playing here? And, uh, and, and what do you, what do you make of this trend? 
I mean, I think absolutely this is the bifurcation by education, right? I mean, this is why the polls were one of the reasons the polls were so off in 2016 was that um, pollsters in the past had never controlled for level of education when they were looking at their sample size. So they had way too many college educated white voters and not enough non-college white voters in 2016 in their samples because those two groups had never diverged in the past. Mm. So it wasn't a politically relevant thing to wait for. And now it very much is. There was a huge, uh, huge diversion of those two groups and uh, and Democrats continue to then build on that in 2018 and 2020. And that gap got even bigger. And I actually didn't think it could get bigger because yeah. it was big in, in 2016. Um, so it does change the political dynamics a little bit. Um, but it means I, I don't think it changes the kind of governing dynamics, um, you know, because it's it's kind of like what we were talking about with business, um, you know, the other day. The When you think about Democrats, they support unions mm-hmm. and the union leaders support Democrats, vice yeah. versa. Uh, that doesn't mean that the union the membership. Membership, <laughs> right. It's a totally different. Yeah. So it, it it matters in that, um, you know, you used to think, oh, the um, the steel workers could go turn out all of their people and every one of those people was going to vote for Democrats. That isn't definitely not true anymore. Um, but I think we've figured that out over <laughs> the last yeah. two elections, thankfully, because it was a bit of a surprise in 2016. Um, but uh, the opposite is happening on the business side, which is uh, the business leaders still prefer r- Republicans because, uh, you know, the big corporations um, don't want regulation, don't want taxes, um, but their employee base is increasingly frustrated um, and increasingly democratic um, because they are the white-collar workers that are trending towards stems. So there's there's kind of a weird um, tension that's happening there. I don't think Randy Weingarten, the head of the AFT, you know, American Federation of Teachers, is going to become a Republican. Yeah. Um, but and maybe teachers are are a bad example and it's more about the the more male dominated unions. But um but that Mitch McConnell's not doing anything for unions. Like even if all the people that are in the unions are voting for Republicans, that doesn't change the the fundamental ideology around unions and and being anti-union within the Democratic Party. And it doesn't necessarily change the uh the strain of anti-corporatism that exists in the Democratic Party that those yeah. corporations are filled with Democrats now. Yeah, yeah. I think it just makes it harder for Democrats to turn people out, right? Yeah. I think it was a nice lever that that's they could right. pull for 30 years, and that's a lever they can't pull. Yeah, yeah. so let's talk about that for a minute. I want in the, in the political context and sort of looking forward to the midterm, despite the overall trend, right, of blue-collar workers toward Republicans, Biden won union households by 17 points and beat Trump among union workers in Michigan and Wisconsin in 2020, uh, according to Edison Research exit polls. Trump actually won more union households in Pennsylvania and Ohio. Um, Both states have an open Senate seat in 2022. Um, Two Republicans, Pat Toomey in PA, uh, Rob Portman in Ohio, uh, are not seeking re-election in 2022. You mentioned the Senate retirements. Um, How important are union votes going to be in those races? Uh, What should we expect to see from candidates trying to win over blue-collar votes, both on the – I mean, Republicans seem to have – maybe an easier time of this now because of the education gap, but Democrats have to work hard to now maybe earn back those blue collar votes. How do you expect them to do that? 
Mm-hmm. I don't think we know. Uh, no, I, I do think it is really important for Democrats to address the education gap. And and here's why. It's not just with white voters. What we saw actually in 2020, you know, we often talk about non-college voters and we and we picture this education gap just being among white people. We're, we're, college voters, we assume white people. Non-college voters, we assume white people. And then there's people of color and they aren't assumed to have any education. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like there, there's no other descriptors um, that are attached to people of color because they're all Democrats. Well, we realized that wasn't true in the last election because we saw particularly non-college Latino voters, non-college African-American men uh, trending away from the Democratic Party. And so this is not just uh, a problem of the upper Midwest and, you know, um, the Rust Belt. This is actually a problem in Texas. This is a problem potentially in Georgia. This is a problem in places where uh, Democrats are relying on people of color to deliver um, the majority because if we can't connect, if if we think our entire, um, you know, our entire ethos is about college-educated people and um, that were responsive to uh, and talking about people who work office jobs, um, we're not going to be able to build a governing majority. We need people who don't work office jobs in order to get to 51% in every place, in every single place. And one of the things I I thought um, came out of the 2020 election was we kept talking about, oh, people who are, you know, stay at home, stay at home, stay at home, Uh, work from your kitchen, Mm. stay at home, stay safe. Yeah. Lots of people can't do that. If you're in these jobs, it's literally not possible. And what those folks wanted to hear was, how are we going to get our economy back going? How are we going to, you know, get back into the office? Because I'm not making money if I'm sitting at my kitchen table. I mean, I, Linnea, am making money sitting at my kitchen table, but that person is not. Um, I think it also is, you know, when when we demonize oil and gas, and and you know, the if you're an oil or gas worker in Texas, like that's not great for you. So. Um, We can't continue to um, just move in this direction of only college-educated folks. I think in in the average state, it's about a third of people have a college degree. So that's not enough. I mean, Frank, all of this does accrue to Republican benefit. Um, It doesn't all accrue, right? So here's the other dynamic going on, right, I think, is set aside presidential elections where the turnout's high. You know, uh, educated voters traditionally are better bets on turning out, and the marginal cost of turning them out is lower than it is to turn out um, non-educated. That's true. So there's an advantage there that Democrats, if you look in the suburbs of Philadelphia, it's slightly less expensive, and you get a better bang for your buck on turning those people out than you do if you have to go find everyone around Harrisburg or, you know, outside some other places, right? And so that's part of this that could help, right? So in some of these states, that's, I think, I know we're going to talk about Virginia later, but I think that's kind of what we'll have to see in Virginia is yeah. does Fairfax, Loudoun, and Prince William, they kind of outperform yeah. the rest of the state. And if that's true, that's probably a good sign for Democrats. And if they don't, then they've got a different problem. And, so, and Trump won't be on the ballot. So the question, that, the that was the natural turnout yeah. For, <laughs> yeah. for the non-college white voters Although, particularly. you know, maybe not literally on the ballot, but we'll, we'll get we'll get, we'll get to that <laughs> in a minute. But before, before just before we move on to Virginia um, – I'd love to hear your thoughts on how th- this this trend, this sort of realignment, this resorting, is impacting the Republican Party's relationships with the business community as more of the white collar workers drift away toward the Democratic Party. Yeah, I think it's tricky. I, um, as as we talked about 
earlier, right? I think from a regulatory standpoint and a tax standpoint, the party, whether it's Trump, whether it's McConnell, yeah. whether it's Romney, they're kind of all sitting in that space, Yep. right? There's not a lot of divergence there. And so for business leaders, especially, you know, um, the mid-sized large companies, like it's just better business. And at the end of the day, that's really important to them, right? Yep. And so I don't think the party has lost them that poorly yet. Okay. Even I, though the business roundtable news you saw last week, I think we talked about that. Yeah, before. I think this is the question, right, is are some of um, the fundamental things that are impacting our country, are there some business leaders who are concerned about what's that going to do in the long term? So like, like the erosion of democracy. Yeah, or <laughs> it, let's use one better infrastructure, right? Sure. If, if you don't have roads, if your ports aren't working, then like, yeah, yeah that, that's really an important problem, right? And we see it right now, it seems to be a problem. So like the infrastructure stuff like that can have an impact on it. From a regulatory standpoint, especially at the federal level, Republicans have done such a good job when they get the levers of power mm. to pull that stuff down mm. that dramatically increases the value of these companies. And I think it's interesting when you look at the Chamber of Commerce, right? Yeah. The Chamber of Commerce um, in D.C. has this giant building that sits right outside oh, yeah. the White House. It and is a majestic piece of architecture. Yes, it yeah. is. Uh, and it, uh, it that this massiveness of that building is similar to the massiveness of their political influence within the Republican Party. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and they are supportive of of the BIF, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill. Yeah. Um, they, they've worked hard to pressure Republicans to pass it. They they hate the Build Back Better Act, the, the reconciliation bill. And so you see that split, that substantive split happening. But my bet is they hate the reconciliation bill more than they like the BIF. Mm. <laughs> and they hate the reconciliation bill plus everything else that Democrats are going to do more than they like the mm. BIF. So politically, in the midterms, I think they're going to be endorsing Republicans. We even haven't reached though, a tipping point. Even though they, they are supportive of one big piece of the president's agenda. Interesting. Okay, let's talk about Virginia. Voting is underway in the Virginia gubernatorial election in a tight race between Democrat Terry McAuliffe and Republican Glenn Youngkin. The 538 polling average has McAuliffe ahead by just over two points, but the latest Monmouth University poll out this week has it at a dead heat. This election takes place just 10 months after Biden's inauguration, and from 1977 to 2009, the party that lost the White House the year before ended up winning the Virginia governor's race. And that streak was broken only once by Terry McAuliffe when he was elected in 2013 after Obama's re-election. Former President Barack Obama is set to campaign with McAuliffe this weekend, and this is on top of the appearances by First Lady Jill Biden, Stacey Abrams, Senator Amy Klobuchar, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, and Richmond Mayor LeVar Stoney. Historically in Virginia, a candidate from the president's party has won a smaller share of the vote than the president did in the race for the White House the year prior. That's held true since 1969, uh, according to Kyle Kondik, the managing editor of Sabato's Crystal Ball, which is published by the University of Virginia Center of Politics. A Fox News survey found that 52% of Trump 2020 voters in Virginia are extremely interested in the governor's race, quote unquote, extremely interested, while only 40% of Biden voters had that level of interest. So... In these off-year races, there's a lot. To, there's a lot of stuff to pull apart in this Virginia race, and there's a lot of stuff that might matter and might not matter at all. But in these off-year races, we tend to focus almost exclusively on the top of the ticket. And both of you know Virginia very well, so 
Lene, why don't you start here? How should we expect McAuliffe's and Youngkin's performance uh, to impact down ticket races? I mean, I think the the thing above that is Biden's performance, right? I mean, I think Democrats in Virginia were in a much better place when Biden's favorables were higher. And we're seeing uh, the favorability of this president uh, go down. I'm hoping that it will be able to get back up before November 2nd. But people are already voting in Virginia. So uh, it's happening. Uh, particularly Democrats are already voting because now we've decided we we really like early voting. Uh, <laughs> which, which is great. Um, but it is is um, it's it's really important to look at, you know, then how that's going to trickle down. Terry McAuliffe has a, a trillion dollars, very popular, former governor of Virginia has this weird thing where you can only do one term as governor and then you have to leave. So then we've had, uh, you know, Ralph Northam, but now he can't run again. So um, we have the return of, of McAuliffe. Uh, so he's going to outperform everybody else on the ticket. Um, he's being dragged down by by the Biden and, and overall Democratic favorability falling. Um, but then there is a fantastic lieutenant governor candidate. Um, and then there's an, an AG, an attorney general that is running again. Um, if Terry McAuliffe doesn't win, those two don't win. There's there's no way. Um, and then if those three don't win, then we're probably going to lose at least one chamber of the state legislature. So it kind of it trickles down. So we need McAuliffe to win by not just a little. We need him to mm. win by a couple of points mm. in order to make sure that we do win that lieutenant governor's race of somebody who is much less known than Terry McAuliffe, uh, the the attorney general's race, and then also the state legislature. And um, and I'm hoping that we're going to be able to pull that across the line. Um, but it is looking very much dicier than we want it to because this is yeah. a state that Biden won by 10 points. Yeah. Well, okay. So, Frank, there's the diciness of how it's looking, which is sort of, it's really, you know, it's dubious. It's difficult to know whether these polls are real because we just, we just saw how far off California was. The turnout models were completely wrong. Um, so it's possible that this dead heat might not actually be a dead heat. So we don't know, but we know turnout's going to be low. Um, McAuliffe is working to put Trump front and center. He's been stressing the overlap between Trump and Youngkin He's focused on the opposition to vaccine and masking mandates. Uh, McAuliffe even called the race a launchpad for a potential Trump 2024 campaign. He said if he were to lose the gubernatorial race, it would be the comeback of Donald Trump. How should we be thinking about, there's there's a, a number of questions I want to ask you. A, how should we be thinking about this campaign strategy in Virginia? Um, is that a fear of is that is that fear of a Trump comeback going to be enough to push 2020 Biden voters to the polls? And I also think it's important. I, I want to get at this. We look at Virginia races in the in the off year as a bellwether for what's going to happen in the midterms. And there's there's some interesting discussion I think we can have about what happens in terms of the demographics of the voters who actually turn out and how they vote. That's interesting even though it might not be predictive of what's going to happen in the midterms because it's so far away. But what is uh, even more interesting to me are the decisions that power players will make based on the results here and what what can, what new campaigns this spawns in other places because they're reading too much into Virginia. And, and you know, chief among those, as, as we're discussing, is Trump, potentially. How much do you think this ends up, uh, you know, influencing whether Trump and more, you know, many Trump's um, get into the 
That's lots a lot of, of, there's a lot, there's I'm a sorry, lot of questions. I'm sorry, I hit you with a lot there. So, so take let, it wherever let, you want to go. Yeah, so let's, <laughs> let's start with yeah. this first idea that like everyone looks at this race yeah. every four years and they make all these decisions based on it. And especially in New York and Washington, right? We sit around, we say, this is what happened in Virginia. And so like, hey, now let's go look at what's going to happen next year. And yeah. like none of that ever comes true. Yeah. Well, ever. It's, the, it's the only movie playing. No, that's so. right. <laughs> it's the only movie that's at right. the cinema. So we're all watching it. Right. If this were, if this gubernatorial election was happening in a normal year, right, we wouldn't be talking about it. I really believe that. Mm. Right. I think it just wouldn't be on the radar of things that people in Washington talk about. So first off, I think it has nothing to do with what's going to happen in 12 months. It's at, just the only show that's on just, Netflix. That's, that's right. exactly right. <laughs> we watched all the other shows <laughs> yeah. already. I think that's, that's exactly right. right. It's yeah. Squid Games. Yeah, yeah it's but right. it makes for lots of cable news. It does. Like, yeah, it, well, you, you, you know, got to you you fill, fill the airtime. Yeah. And so, and it's close to DC, right? So like everyone thinks they know everything yep. about it. Yep. And, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and here's the problem with this race, and it's always been true, is the turnout is so, so low relative to the other elections, mm. that it makes it really tricky to see what's going to happen. So what I'm looking for is this state has trended blue. Any way you cut it. Yeah. It has just trended blue since I first worked. The first time I worked in, in Virginia politics was like in 01. Oh, wow. Okay. Right? So it, yeah. you know, Bush carried it in 2000, carried it in 2004, mm -hmm. right? And then in 2006, we lost the Senate race mm -hmm. in Virginia. And it's literally downhill from there. Put set Bob McDonald in 2009 aside. That was mm -hmm. a special year because of Obama and Obamacare, mm -hmm. and Bob McDonald was from the right part of the state, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, this is a state that has moved blue. The question is, is has it moved blue enough mm -hmm. to overcome these national factors that clearly always plant in this race? And in 13, we had a good Democratic candidate, and I would argue not a great Republican candidate. We don't have to get into that. And Obama's numbers at the time weren't significantly horrible. And so I think he just got enough of the things he needed to get across the line. I think we're going to find out real quickly if Fairfax County, the largest county in the state, is enough of a blue place to overcome these other issues that are going on in the state. And then the second thing we're going to find out is, are these Trump people going to turn out? So this race is like somewhere between 45 to 49 percent of the electorate is going to vote. And so I think that's the real question. I don't think it's a persuasion game. I think it's a turnout game. I think that's why Terry's bringing in these people. He's not bringing those people in to persuade people. He's yep. reminding people that there's an yep. election. That they got to go vote. So that's the answer to that question. I think the other to your question about Trump is Glenn Youngkin is not Donald Trump. Right? I mean, he is— He's being very careful to make he, sure everybody he, thinks yeah, that. Yeah, I, I think his team's done a really nice job of kind of— splitting down the middle on this thing. Um, but at the end of the day, the way I think about this is if he were running in 2006 or 2004, or 2010, like he'd have been a Mitt Romney Republican. Um, so the question becomes, if he wins, does that get a lot of people like him to say, see, we, we can still be part of this game? And if he doesn't, does that influence these other set of people, the more Trump people to say, See, we don't have to worry about those guys. 
And I also think it's going to influence Democrats' strategies. You know, one thing that that we do see in in these what we call off off year elections. It's not just a midterm year. Right. It's a it's a weird one. It's the, it's the random year that nobody yeah. has other elections and there's nothing else on Netflix. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> the um you know the the thing that you can do in those is is try out campaign tactics that then you're going to use in in the midterms. And we certainly and see uh, yeah, and we certainly see Republicans doing that with. Um, you know, they're trying out this critical race theory stuff. They're they're um, they're uh, piloting some things that we're going to see coming around again if they seem successful. Um, but the thing that Democrats are seeing uh, as a pilot is this: Can we make Glenn Youngkin Trump? Mm. And so uh, I spend about half of my time in Richmond, and uh, I get to see the signs and, and the ads and all of the fun. Uh, and my girlfriend does not work in politics, and she uh, said the other day, I saw these signs that say. Glenn Youngkin equals Trump and they're red signs and they say Glenn Youngkin equals Trump. Who put those signs up? Hmm. Are they Glenn Youngkin signs or are they Terry McAuliffe signs? And I was like, <laughs> they're definitely Terry McAuliffe signs because they're in the fan in Richmond. <laughs> like, yeah. They're in your our neighborhood, so uh, which is very blue. So they're definitely Terry McAuliffe signs. But but she didn't know which way that cut, right? Wow. Because you could see totally. in some places that being a turnout thing for some of these voters, we don't know if they're paying attention anymore. Um, but for Democrats, if uh, who historically are really good at forgetting there's elections except for when there's a presidential one, yeah. um, it could be the thing that gets folks out. And so we just we're seeing if there's still enough juice in that yeah, lemon a, to squeeze. There's a mailer that went around from oh. McCall's people, right, that was an endorsement package of Trump endorsing Glenn. Well, he called into that rally last last yep. week. Uh, uh, Trump called into the Glenn Youngkin rally, which Youngkin did not go to, but it was where they said the Pledge of Allegiance. We were talking about the Pledge of Allegiance to a flag that was carried at the insurrection, literally. Yeah. No, my only point was to to what we just discussed. Like, I do think there is some testing going on of like, yeah. forget whether or not Glenn is Trump. Can yeah. you convince can you, people can, in Ale- the city of Alexandria, Arlington, and Fairfax? Yeah. Can you convince those voters that it is essentially Trump? Yeah. And if you can, does that affect their turnout? Yeah. And my point is that Trump seems to want Glenn Youngkin to be Trump. That's sure. my point. That's like, right. Trump wants everybody think, to think that I, this is my guy. I think especially in an off-off year election, neither party is sure which That's is, right. yeah. which is going to get more benefit out yeah. of that argument, right? Yeah. Because it is about turnout and uh, Trump does activate both bases. Yeah. But the thing that I think is interesting, so Glenn Youngkin may not be Trump. I think that's kind of a, an objective fact, although um, I am happy to put a sign in my yard that says Youngkin equals Trump. Uh, Terry McAuliffe, call me. Um, but the, um, the thing that it just reminds me is that uh, we are talking about positions that could lead to Trump again because Mm. Virginia, Democrats cannot win the White House without Virginia. There's no way we can win in 2024 without Virginia. There's no path. So if we see the state legislatures flip to Republican, if we see the uh, attorney general flip to Republican, if we see the governor flip to Republican, they could potentially refuse to certify the election. 
They could potentially undermine democracy. And without those electors from Virginia, there is no second term for Joe Biden. There is no first term for for a President Harris. Um, There's no path. So I think we do um, need to get a little bit of a fire under us that this isn't just what's going to happen, you know, in in state politics in Richmond. But this is actually going to determine, you know, whether we have a democracy in 2024. So why don't we see more of that messaging? Because that is what I, I mean, for me, I think Democrats should put democracy on the ballot, democracy itself, but we don't see them doing that. And is that because it's not that motivating for people? Or why do you think we don't hear more of that? Because I am, like you, acutely concerned about, okay, yes, voting rights, sure, on the front end, but way more concerned about what happens on the back end, as I've said before, after the votes are cast and who gets to count them and who gets to certify them and the and the appointees the that that Republicans want to replace the machinery with. I think it's because we still don't truly believe that will actually happen, even though we saw it happen. I think we, you know, most of us are like, but the system is going to work, even though uh, we see Trump going and finding all of these low-level election officials and endorsing people, um, you know, primarying people who certified the election, um, endorsing people who didn't, uh, and we really need to get ahead of that because if, um, you know, if he succeeds at that, it actually doesn't matter who yeah. <laughs> who wins the election. If if we're not going to go by who actually had got more votes. Yeah, I mean, the extent to which fear actually motivates people, and Republicans are very good at using fear in yep. campaigns, that to me seems like a pretty scary thing if yeah. you can convince people that it's real. You don't think no, so? No, I don't. Okay. I think <laughs> I don't, I'm not arguing whether or not it's real or not. It's I don't know enough. People, yeah, it's But I think that is enough. a Washington, New York thing, mm. right? So I think people in this town and people in New York, maybe in LA or San Francisco or Seattle, like there's, there's talk about that. There's podcasts about it. That is not. If you go talk to voters in Roanoke, mm. no one gives a shit about that. Yeah. No one knows about it. And it's not It's not an education problem. I don't even think it's a persuasion problem. It's that, like, people have lives. And their lives are getting up and getting their kids to school and making lunch and going to work and getting back from work yeah. and making dinner. And something as... Obscure. As obscure. Yeah. And abstract. As abstract, abstract as that yeah. is just not a compelling reason yeah. to vote. Yeah. You know, the price of milk could be somewhat compelling. The price of gasoline could be somewhat compelling. But worrying about something that's really hard to, to describe. Yeah. Like, I'm not so sure I could describe to somebody what that threat tactically looks like. Yeah. I kind of get it. And yeah. I've been working in politics for 20 years. Yeah. And I don't really I know, get it. You're right. That's and it's, a really it's good the same point. problem we had with impeachment in Russia, yeah, that, right? It's like, we were all like, oh my God, this yeah. is yeah. happening. He's doing this crazy thing with Russia. And everyone's like, what? What What are you talking about? Yeah. It, it just never connected with real voters. <sighs> okay. Uh, for our listeners in Virginia, you have until October 30th to vote early in person. If you're voting absentee, your ballot needs to be postmarked by election day and received by noon, three days after the elections. So put it in the mail, folks. Or go in person. Or go in person. Now that we are up to speed on a few of the biggest stories this week, let's turn to what you are watching under the radar. Lene, what do you have for us? 
Well, this wasn't under the radar a few months ago, but I think it needs to be back on our radar, which okay. is the Texas abortion law. And we are seeing uh, we're seeing it kind of ping-ponging itself through the courts, uh, moving up towards the Supreme Court where, you know, they've already taken the Mississippi case. We're already going to have a big uh, abortion uh, docket that's happening. Um, and it is... It actually, you know, seems like the entire debate is about judges and, and judicial nominees and judicial decisions. But actually, Congress is also talking about this right now. And mm. it got almost no uh, attention. But the House passed um, what's called the Women's Health Protection Act, which is the first time in my memory that um, th that Congress has – that either chamber of Congress has passed something to affirmatively uh, codify Roe versus Wade, put it into law, and to um, put in protections for the, you know, private rights of action for people who are being denied their right to mm. an abortion. Uh, so it's really new legislation. It's actually something that uh, Kamala Harris proposed in her, um, in her primary um, a couple of years ago, and now it's become um, kind of mainstream within the Democratic Party. So the Democrats in the House took a vote on this, and it passed with all but one vote. And that's a big sea change within the Democratic Party. Wow. Ten years ago, that would not have been true. There was a, a lot of pro-life Democrats. And now we, we just don't see that anymore. We see people affirmatively co-sponsoring, even in these moderate districts, um, this kind of legislation. And the Senate is about to take the vote. So they're going to take a vote on this. Uh, so I'm really watching what folks like Joe Manchin, uh, Bob Casey from mm. Pennsylvania, who is a Catholic and self-described pro-life do on this kind of a bill because um, they see the threat coming, right? This is a very different moment in context, I think, than we've seen in the past. And also they know that their voters are a different voting coalition. We're talking about, you know, we're winning more college-educated voters. Uh, the moderates are from different places and from different coalitions than they used to be. Yeah. So a moderate in, you know, when I first got to Washington in 2006 would probably have been, you know, a pro-life Democrat who... Uh, who was skeptical on some of the other social issues, um, but who was really pro-union. Well, that's not the kind of moderate we have anymore. We have a pro-business moderate who's actually much more liberal on social issues because they're from uh, Henrico County right outside of Richmond. They're from the suburbs. They're from a different place. And so uh, I was really interested to see that all those moderates voted for it in the House. I'm really interested to see what happens in the Senate. Um, and, you know, it's one of those bills that we can't pass with a 50-vote threshold. So even if we do get all the Democrats, then we have to be back to the filibuster debate. But uh, um, so it won't, you know, go directly to Biden's desk. But I think it's really important to watch um, both for the constitutional rights of women in this country and also for uh, the dynamics of the two political parties and how they're they're really changing. Yeah, I was going to ask you, do you think this was designed to actually pass or to be more of a messaging bill or a proxy to bring back up the filibuster? I think it was designed to actually pass, and I think it's really good policy. Um, I I still am skeptical that Manchin and Cinema and maybe a few others are, are willing to blow up the filibuster. Um, but this is the place where um, I actually hate the argument that we should blow it up just for voting rights, because <laughs> uh -huh. I'm like, if we're going to blow it up, what about the Equality Act. 
What about background checks? What about policing reform? What about the Women's Health Protection Act? Like, I work on all the social issues. What about immigration reform? Mm. Like, there's other stuff we want to do. So if we're going to blow it up, let's just blow the whole thing. (laughs) Joe Manchin, which we're going to get to in a minute. Frank, what do you got for us? Uh, The expectation of inflation. I think that is the thing to be watching. Say more, because I am watching that. Yeah, so it's less about... Is there inflation, right? I think we know there's some inflation. We can't really tell. Is the inflation a function of a bad last year, right? So it's the rate mm. of change. Is that the issue? Are there some short-term issues like what's happening with the supply chains that's driving up prices? All of that like, will shake itself out. Whether it shakes itself out in the short term, the medium term, it'll probably shake itself out. I think the real question is, is are consumers, mm. what's their expectation of inflation? Because if their expectation of inflation continues to rise— that could lead into some really bad problems into 2022, could get you all the way to a recession before the midterm. So I think the I think in the last quarter, and I, I might have this wrong, but I think the expectation of inflation was higher than the actual rate of inflation, meaning I think people are expecting future inflation more than there actually is inflation. And if that were to continue, I think that's a real bad sign for the Biden administration, and I'm not convinced there's a lot they can do about it. Right. Yeah. Energy yeah. prices. There's some things that they just don't have levers to pull. Yeah. And, you know, you're walking into this for business. This fourth quarter is a really important retail quarter for everybody. Yeah. Uh, you know, you have this supply chain problem. If you have an expectation of inflation problem on top of it, it could it could be bad. I mean, and, it, and it's a question of whether or not people actually feel it. I mean, well, it actually might not even matter whether they feel it. It's whether they think it exists and whether they blame the supply chain issues on and like basically does the economy feel like it's working well for me right now is could be a proxy question for whether or not there's inflation well there's definitely right? a political piece to that but there's also an economic piece to it which is if i expect inflation to go up then i'm going to want to buy more things now because i expect them to be more expensive when it goes up more and then it's going to go up more because i'm buying more things uh, and we don't have those things right now so i as ron I says frequently i am not an economist <laughs> my understanding is that there's there's a real problem there which is inflation will be higher if people keep expecting it to be higher than it is um so that's definitely true but and i will, it, and and a, and a tight labor market, right? And, so, like, yeah. we have all these things, got all these, these ingredients right. in this in That's this right. pot of yeah. stew yeah. that is mixing. The question is, is is there going to be a relief valve somewhere? Yeah. And I don't, I don't know enough to know if there is, but yeah. the expectation of inflation is something that I think is important to watch. Meanwhile, the stock market is soaring, <laughs> seemingly. So, yeah. Well, I will tell you that, which is kind of a mystery that economists are kicking around, right? Mm. Like. We have all these other issues going on, but the stock market is still— Well, as long as we have capital flow, right? Mm -hmm. I think, you know, every year, I think the stock market becomes less and less an indicator of what's actually happening in the economy and has much more to do with what's the capital flow look like, Mm -hmm. what are the cash reserves look like in some of these really large companies. And that's not the same as, like, what is happening in Richmond um, to that family— and that's a different problem. Totally. And I will say I just got out of some research in swing districts and in uh, West Virginia and Arizona for obvious reasons because mm-hmm. we're trying to talk to people about Build Back Better. Um, but they um, everybody knows what supply chain means now. <laughs> and nobody would have even six months ago. Wow. So that is uh, that is an indication that people are paying attention. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Lene, Frank. Uh, it's a pleasure thinking out loud with you. Before we go to the after party, aka Politicology Plus, 
Where can people find you on the internet, Frank? You can't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I don't mean that. Okay. Funny. That's I, great. I don't participate in social media. Um, oh, man. It's just not. So much healthier. Not a thing. <laughs> so we just need to have him back on here more. We'll just have to have so, you back. <laughs> so we know what Frank thinks about things. Yeah. Lene? I'm at Lene Erickson on Twitter. And you can find the polling I was talking about at thirdway.org. And I'm at Ron Steslow on Twitter. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com slash plus. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. Even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>